Well, as we uh, continue our making our way through John chapter 4, not speedily, but steadily, um, as we continue to make our way through John chapter 4, we're going to gather our study this morning under the heading, Jesus and the Woman at the Well and the Effect. Uh, so far in our studies, we've had Jesus and the Woman at the Well and the Distance, and then the Gift, and then the Progression, and then we spent a couple of weeks on worship as she responds. And then this morning, we're going to think some about the effect that has come from this, this conversation that they've had. And, and we'll frame our study in this way. Um, when, I was, when I was a middle school reading teacher in what now seems like another lifetime, uh, but when I taught reading, one priority for reading instruction was to help students improve their use of reading strategies. Um, so, for example, we would work on things like context clues. So with context clues, you might come upon a word that you don't know, but maybe you can discern what that word generally means by the use of the words that are around that word. So you use context clues to make sense of, of a word that you don't know, or we might talk about something like text connections. That's another reading strategy. So comprehension levels go up if the reader can, can make connections, maybe between what they're reading in their own life, for example. Uh, so, so there are these different strategies that are important to teach, and at the end of it all, all the various reading strategies really come down to putting words to things that uh, good readers do naturally. Uh, we kind of do them intuitively without thinking about them. If you're reading a book, and, and while you've never maybe heard the phrase text-to-life connection, as you're reading that book, you're making those connections, aren't you? This part of the book reminds me about this part of my life, and our comprehension level goes up. Uh, so these strategies are just things that good readers do, usually without even thinking about them. Of course, uh, to be able to think about them only helps, which is why we teach them, uh, but we do them somewhat naturally. Uh, so, so with that in mind, now if, if, if uh, chapter 4 of John's gospel was a story that we were working through in reading class, as we get to verse 26, we would have an opportunity to practice another important reading strategy, sometimes referred to as wondering. Wondering. So good readers wonder while they're reading books. Uh, they ask questions as they read, like, I wonder what will happen to this character if, if such and such a thing happens or if, or if that uh, interaction takes place. A big part of good reading comprehension is wondering as we read. Uh, so at this point, if we were taking John chapter 4 for our story today, the, the teacher might stop the class and, and have us do an exercise along these lines. We would all get our notebooks out and we would write down on our notebooks, I wonder, dot, 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 and then we'd have a few minutes to think about it, and then we would fill in the blank in terms of what's happening next. Um, and then that's because in chapter 4, verse 26, we'd have this, this perfect place to stop and consider this uh, kind of comprehension strategy, this wondering because while we're, we're used to reading the larger section of the narrative, we even read further this morning, while we're used to the story, we know what happens next in terms of Jesus' interaction uh, with the lady and his disciples and these different things. If we were just stopped at verse 26, yours would have been to have an eye knowing the whole story. Our most natural response as good readers would have been to have an I wonder question forming, especially as we think through all that's happened. Uh, so if we're remembering all that has taken place between Jesus and the woman up to this point, we have in our minds that the Jesus began by bridging this extraordinary gap that existed between himself and the woman. And, and not only has Jesus bridged that distance, but, but he's offered her this gift of living water. He's offered her uh, the eternal life and forgiving cleansing that she really needs, uh, sourced in God's grace. It's made clear that Jesus knows this woman's sin and the reality of all of that, and He's offering this renewing life for her as a child of God. She's instructed to call upon God as Father even in this passage. 
And, and as we read, uh, or as we, as we continue to read, we see that this woman wants to worship as a result of all of this. So she desires to properly orient herself toward this God who would give this kind of grace to her. How shall I worship in response to all of this? We've studied that for the last couple weeks. Uh, so she has that desire. And, and so with all this running through our mind, we actually get a sense that, that she's a bit overwhelmed by the time we get to verse 25 where the woman says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming and He will explain everything to us. So, so after getting through all this dialogue with Jesus about her need and the offer for cleansing grace and what it means to worship in response to all of this, she comes to this conclusion that ultimately John wants all his readers to come to and that she's saying effectively, what I really need for this is the Christ. What I really need, if I'm going to live a life like you're speaking about here, if I'm really going to trust in this grace, I need the clarity that will come when the Messiah comes. And Jesus, in response to her statement, reveals Himself to be the Christ she needs. I am, He says to her. And if we could stop right here and not turn the page yet, but I'll get out our notebooks, we could write an I wonder statement. I wonder how she'll respond to this expression of identity from Jesus. And I wonder what the effect of this whole conversation with Jesus is now going to be. Remember, Jesus and this woman are already in a dialogue that wouldn't have been socially acceptable. Uh, Jesus' disciples are gone, but they're going to come back any minute. Uh, the woman has been confronted by her sin. The woman's no doubt slightly confused about what all this worship and spirit and truth business really means. There's a lot going on here. Uh, not least of all, the reality that Jesus didn't just say, I'm the Messiah, when He responded to her about His identity, you remember, but He actually responded by saying, I am. So He's taken that Old Testament covenant name for God, Yahweh in Hebrew, He's taken that name and applied it to Himself. So, so we wonder, like good readers, what is going to happen next? Well, what is going to be the effect of all of this upon the woman, upon the disciples, who are, who are no doubt going to return shortly? Uh, what, what's going to take place? And it's that effect that John now works through in verses 27 to 30. Uh, because in these verses, John shows us what the fallout is, if you like. He, he shows us what the results are uh, from this socially unacceptable yet profoundly meaningful conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. Here's the effects of the whole thing. And as we pay attention to what's here, we can actually be greatly encouraged ourselves just in what it looks like to encounter the living Christ and then be responding to the truth of who He is. There's a good word here for us just in terms of what, uh, what kind of expectations to have around the centrality of gospel witness and the effects and the, and the far reach of, of what all of this really represents. Um, so we'll, we'll get into the verses here. Again, we're going to focus on 27 to 30, and, and here we have the effect that this whole conversation between Jesus and this woman ends up having. And if you look at verse 27, first of all there, uh, the first thing we'll notice is that the uh, effect we're, we're, we're given uh, insight into, first of all from John, is the disciples' surprise at this interaction. The disciples' surprise at this interaction. So if you look at the text, you see that we get the word surprise uh, right there out of verse 27, where we're told that just then... Jesus' disciples arrived and they were amazed. Okay, that's the surprise, astonished, marveling word group in Greek. They were, they were amazed, marveling, that Jesus was talking with a woman. 
So, so we have the disciples surprised at this interaction. We, we remember that, that when Jesus and His disciples first came to this well along the, along the course of their journey, uh, they needed to go into town to get food, and Jesus stayed behind because He was so worn out from the journey. That was back in verses 6 and 7. And now the disciples are back, and what John wants us to know as, as one of the disciples who was in this group, remember, John is included in this, in this disciple group, uh, he wants us to know that these disciples were shocked when they interrupted this interaction between Jesus and the woman. Right, they get back, and Jesus is speaking with this woman alone at a well. Uh, no doubt this would have been, uh, it would have been evident that Jesus and, and this woman had been in a very serious and personal dialogue just by the look on their faces. We think of the ground they've covered in terms of their conversation, uh, the seriousness, the significance of the conversation would no doubt have been written all over their faces. And the disciples are surprised, and, and we know why. We've talked about this already. In, in this cultural climate, it was very socially unacceptable for a man, especially a man who was counted as a, as a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, it was, it was not socially okay to be speaking alone with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And just to underpin this, I'll read you this instruction that was part of a common adage of the day from rabbinical teaching, which went like this, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even his sister, or a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, because of what men may say. That was typical rabbinical teaching during this time, so we hear the extremely strict conduct listed out there, and here's Jesus speaking alone at a well with this woman, and so the disciples are surprised. They're amazed. Right? Just, just as an aside, it's interesting to note that in John's gospel, he uses this word translated as amazed here a number of different times. And when he uses this word, it is either connected to Jesus' ministry of miraculous works, like raising the dead, or it's connected to the effect of Jesus' teaching, like leaving people in awe because of the knowledge and, and, and wisdom that he had. Those are, those are the two ways it's used in John's gospel. Uh, so, so when this amazed or surprised word is used, every time it's either miracles or Jesus' awe-inspiring instruction, every time the word is used that way, except in this case. So, so, so that just emphasizes how astounded the disciples are at this interaction that's taking place. The disciples are awestruck. They're beside themselves in amazement that Jesus would be talking with this lady, which just serves to, to again, emphasize how, how taken aback they really must have been when the same word that can be described, used to describe people's reaction to, say, resurrection power can be used to describe the disciples' response to what's going on here. Is that they're awestruck. What, what in the world is Jesus doing? And so as a result... We're told in verse 27 that they, they have two questions. They have two questions. One question is for the woman, what do you want? In other words, what kind of trouble are you trying to get Jesus into here? What do you want? And they have a question for Jesus. Why are you talking with her? What in the world are you doing, Jesus? This isn't okay. We, we leave you for an hour to go buy groceries and we come back and this is going on. What in the world do you think you're doing? But as the text says, well, the disciples had these two questions, they didn't ask their questions. They're astounded that Jesus is talking with her, and then John tells us, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Now, now we know they had these two questions because John, our gospel writer, is part of this awestruck group at the time. He's telling us, these are the questions that are going through our mind. They have the questions, but instead we're told no one asked these questions. And we wonder why that is especially when we think that this disciple group proves to be very comfortable asking Jesus the wrong questions at various times in His ministry. But here they, they say nothing. And why is that? 
Well, it's, it's not because the disciples have such an extraordinary understanding of Jesus' ministry. We know that for sure. So, so it's not that they're, they're, they're seeing this interaction between Jesus and this woman who's from Samaria, and they're thinking to themselves that this is so wonderful to see uh, Christ interacting in a way that fulfills His earthly mission to bring those from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the fold of God's gospel family. It's not that they're thinking that way. In fact, in the very next section, the disciples are totally confused as to what Jesus is talking to, to them about when it comes to His mission and evangelism. Right? They're not keeping their mouths shut here because they have this vast understanding of the far-reaching gospel impact of this gospel conversation with this, with this woman at the well. That's not why. They're just not asking, and we're not told why. I mean, maybe they're embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. Right? This would have been socially embarrassing for a disciple to have their rabbi being so outside of the natural social norms of the day. Maybe they're just kicking the dirt and not making eye contact and waiting for it to all be over. We don't know why they keep quiet from a circumstances perspective. John doesn't tell us. But from a, from a recording this narrative perspective, we have a pretty good idea as to why we're not told why they kept quiet. And that's because John doesn't want us thinking so much about their silence. John wants us thinking about their surprise. Right? I can't believe that Jesus would be speaking to someone like this. It's so not proper. That's what John wants emphasized here. And in that surprise interaction is something so central to our understanding of the gospel. And we can never grow tired of, of meditating on this truth. And that the good news about Jesus is not a message that conforms with the social norms of the day and leaves, anyone feel, and leaves everyone feeling comfortable. The gospel doesn't do that. The good news of the gospel is a matter of truth that's so often socially uncouth. And it's revealed to people in categories of real and deep need who are oftentimes on the fringes of what society would see as acceptable. It's a message for people on the margins. It's not first a message for the religious leaders who think they have it all together. It's a message for people who are socially unacceptable. And, and, and you know who can sometimes uh, be bothered by this the most is Jesus' own followers. Jesus came for those who are far off, isolated, and sinners, searching for hope in all the wrong places. And here the amazing thing is that it's the disciples who are surprised by Jesus' actions. We would expect the Pharisees to be, wouldn't we? They'd be totally put off by this. How in the world could Jesus engage socially in this kind of way? How, how could He be doing that? We'd expect that from the Pharisees. But here's the disciples who have been with Christ Himself. They're the ones who, who have this sense of surprise. And just in considering that, we, we can actually find a, a bit of, of convicting truth here. I find convicting truth here for me. Right? This convicts us when we think that for a variety of reasons, there are those in our life we don't talk to about the gospel because of social norms. We, we can have this line start playing in our mind. I have this line start playing in my mind in, in times of, of gospel opportunity, and it goes something like, you know, if I, if I bring Jesus up, with them there in that place, it just, it just really won't be appropriate. It's not an acceptable place to do that kind of thing. I, I'd better be quiet for now. Right? But Jesus speaking with this woman at the well convicts us in our social silence, doesn't it? So I'm asking myself under a text like this, when was the last time I engaged in a conversation about Jesus that would have been socially uncomfortable uh, had, I, had, I, had I had an effective gospel conversation? I tend to avoid those. We tend to avoid those because we just think to ourselves, we want to be socially appropriate, we want to be socially sensitive, all of these kinds of things. Uh, but when was the last time somebody was surprised when I brought Jesus up? To be honest, most times people expect me to bring Jesus up when I bring Jesus up. 
So it's just something to consider. We, we have the disciples surprised at this interaction, and it teaches us something about how the gospel is going to spread. It's, it's so out of social bounds for Jesus to be talking to her. So I ask myself, as I ask you, is there, is there social boundaries that we need to disregard in order to be faithful with our gospel witness? I'm sure there are. So the first effect here is the disciples' surprise. Secondly, uh, let's say something about the other, another effect of Jesus' interaction here, uh, which is the woman's extraordinary impact. In this case, the woman's extraordinary impact on her own town. So this is just uh, 28 to 30, where we're told that, that after the disciples return, basically interrupting this conversation between Jesus and the woman, right at the climax of the conversation they show up, uh, but in verses 28 to 30, we read that she left her water jar then, went into town and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. So, so one effect of this conversation between Jesus and this woman is that this, this woman now has a significant impact as she goes on to bear witness to Christ. And we've talked already about how in John's gospel, witnessing to Jesus is an important theme. Uh, and it is helpful to know that for all the witnessing that takes place in John's gospel, besides Jesus and John the Baptist, there is no more effective witness recorded in John's gospel than this woman at the well, which is really something to notice. The word translated as witness is used specifically to refer to her in verse 39, which we won't get into today, but it's significant that it refers to her there. Because for all the people in this gospel record, besides Jesus and John the Baptist, there is no more effective witness to Christ in this gospel than this woman. Well, we might have expected Nicodemus to have a far-reaching impact for Christ. After all, he was the well-respected Bible teacher of the day. But it's not Nicodemus who has that effect. And actually, what's very interesting here is that it's not even the disciples who are witnessing to Christ in this chapter, which is just a, a little ironic humor that John throws in here. We can't miss the fact that the, that the disciples went to town back in verse 7, and all they've come back with is snacks. Right? In our verse, the woman goes to town, and what happens? Well, she comes back, as it were, with the whole town to see Jesus in verse 30. It's quite the picture that we're given. The disciples go to town, they come back with food. This woman goes to town and a bunch of people come back to see Jesus. It's really something. And that just underpins another central aspect of the, of the effects of Jesus' ministry here. The result of His ministry is displayed in the extraordinary impact this woman has in witnessing to Him. Which just reminds us that we can never underestimate the significant impact that people who we least expect can have for Jesus. We would expect Nicodemus to be useful given his knowledge and position, but chapter 3 fades off and we don't know where Nicodemus is at for, for many more chapters to come. And not just Nicodemus, but we would expect Jesus' disciples to be effective witnesses here. After all, we just talked about verse 4 not that long ago where Jesus had to travel through Samaria. He must go that way. This is part of the mission he's called his disciples to accompany him in. But, but the disciples are more concerned with, with who Jesus is talking to here than with the fact that they themselves aren't talking to anybody about Jesus at all. And then we have this woman who calls the town to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see. And I all start coming out. So this is, a, this is a wonderful example of the significant impact of people we least expect uh, when it comes to, to gospel work and fruitfulness. The, the, the one Jesus' disciples thought he shouldn't even be talking to has done more witnessing to Jesus 
than anyone else in Jesus' discipleship group. It's an amazing thing. And we take encouragement from this. Because not only are we reminded that the good news about Jesus is for people who seem so far out of social norms and graces, but we're also reminded that it's the least expected kind of people that bear the most effective witness to Jesus, which is an encouragement. The gospel is effectively spread by those we least expect, which should make us thankful because who'd think people like us could be effective in bringing a message about a king and his cross to a city like ours? But then we, we read something like this and we realize it's exactly the people we never expect to have the most impact for Christ. We just think about this, even apply it to a context at, at school for those of you who are students. Right? This is huge for, for student life. To think that Christ has you in your educational situations to shine as a light for Him might seem silly. No, no one even seems to remotely care about Jesus at my school. And quite frankly, if I were to talk about Jesus, that would only make it worse. I'm not the type that has any kind of influence like that. But we don't want to think that way. We don't want to. The people who might seem to have the least influence are so often those who have the most significant impact for the gospel. In fact, if we had to have an application for being a gospel witness, we'd want to be able to check a box labeled, no one sees me as that important, and some people think I'm kind of strange. Quality applicant. It's a prerequisite for being useful in gospel places. So, 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 so as we think about this, we're just recognizing that the effect of this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well is significant. Not only are the disciples surprised at this interaction, right, but then we have this woman's extraordinary impact on her town. And then, finally, we can say something about, uh, we'll call it the new birth evidences that are present after this conversation with Jesus. That's an effect that this conversation has had? New birth evidences? I worked really hard to get a better heading than that, but that's the best one I can come up with. Right? But, but, but it'll make sense. Par- partly, you know, we're, we're going, admittedly, my fault, so slowly through this narrative that, that it's easy to kind of lose track of the flow of, of the way John is unfolding things for us. But we have to remember how chapter 3 is so connected to chapter 4. Chapter 3, we have this, this, and chapter 4, we have this contrast between Nicodemus, the, the highly regarded uh, leader of people, Bible teacher, and the, and the woman at the well. There's a, there's a very clear contrast set up. We're supposed to read these chapters together as much as possible in terms of John's narrative design. Um, and we remember back in chapter 3, in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, he was speaking about how he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Uh, so Jesus was referencing the fact that, that to grasp the significance of what it means to, to really know, to really believe in Christ, to really understand the significance of God's plans of grace, our hearts actually need to be supernaturally made new. And as Nicodemus was struggling to understand the concept, Jesus explained that it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, and then he equated the new birth work of the Holy Spirit to the wind. Do you remember that in, in John chapter 3, verse 8, where Jesus said, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And in other words, we, we, we can't see the Holy Spirit bringing new birth to somebody's heart. It's not the same as being physically born. But we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit bringing new birth to somebody's heart. Right? Like you can't see the wind, but the sound is evident. Or the, the leaves are blowing on the trees. You can't see the wind, but you see the evidence that the wind is blowing. That's what Jesus is getting at here. There's indicators that the, the wind is passing through, even though you can't see the wind itself. So too, there are indicators that a heart has been made new, even though you don't physically see spiritual rebirth that Jesus is talking about. 
And as we think about verse 20, verses 27 to 30 here, especially in thinking about how closely this chapter is connected to chapter 3 with, with Nicodemus and the contrast that's there, when we think about this, we have to notice that in this section, John is giving us evidence of the wind, so to speak, in this woman's life. It, it would seem that John wants us to pick up on the fact that this woman's heart has been quickened by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of Christ to her, and she's been born again. There's evidence of that, of that breeze blowing, to use John chapter 3 language. And, and, and so if we just run through verses 28 to 30 again, let's just look at the different new birth indicators that are represented in this woman's life. This is the effect of Jesus' ministry to her. First of all, there's this new birth indicator in the woman's changed priorities. You notice that in verse 28, where she leaves her water jug to go back to town to tell people about Jesus? Remember, her earlier concern for physical water was, was very evident. She could not make, figure out what Jesus is talking about with this cleansing stream and all of this business. But now her earlier concern for physical water has been replaced by her newfound excitement about spiritual living water that Jesus has been talking about. And that's evidence of new birth. And so she leaves the water jug and goes back to speak to people about it. Because when the Spirit of God makes our hearts alive to Christ, our priorities change, don't they? I'm not so worried about this physical water anymore that I actually came here, but the chores can set to the side for a moment. I've got some other work to do. Right? One pastor from an earlier generation, he put it this way, grace once introduced into the heart drives out old tastes. A converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for. A new tenant is in the house, a new pilot at the helm. The whole world looks different. And here, that's what's happening for the woman. Right? She, she came for physical water, but she's left that priority on the side as she's been affected by the promise of living water from Jesus. So new birth changes our priorities. So we ask ourselves the question, how, how has knowing Christ shifted what I count as most important? As I work through that answer, there's new birth evidence there for me. Right? And the evidence of new birth is also seen in her posture towards people. Remember, she, she's at the well at noon because no one comes to the well at noon. It's too hot. She's staying distance from people, no doubt, because of the, the social shame attached to her immorality. She's far off from people. Even in the beginning, she doesn't want to talk to Jesus. Why are you asking me for a drink, she said, remember? But now instead of living in isolation, sourced in shame, things are different. She goes back to the town and calls people to come. Come see this man who told me everything I ever did. See what a big change that is. New birth affects us in such a way that instead of remaining closed off to others and sunk into ourselves, even when we have what seems like good reasons to keep to ourselves, when we're born again, we don't stay away from people. We're born again and we're compelled to engage with people and invite them to come see Jesus. Our identity is no longer sourced in shame, but it's sourced in this cleansing relief of Christ. And, and so we're about the business of relationally engaging with those around us, desiring to share this good news. So for this woman, uh, for, for, for the sake of the gospel, there's all this evidence of new birth that's here in her priorities, first of all, and then also in her relationship to people. And, th and then we also uh, see this evidenced in her humility. You notice how she's not only engaging with the people of her town, calling them to come see Jesus, but, but she's honest about her past. He told me everything I've ever done. Right? And she's honest about the fact she's not sure she totally gets everything yet. Could this be the Messiah? So she speaks to her personal failings, and she speaks to her timid level of understanding. And this kind of humility is evidence of new birth. Often we would think that being born again means that we speak about our personal victories of perfection and our extraordinary theological knowledge. 
It must mean I'm really a Christian if I've got this holiness thing down cold and if I have an extensive understanding of theological realities. But no, that's not it. Humility is a far greater indicator of new birth than any kind of prideful points for righteousness or theological gold stars for our knowledge. This woman is humble. He told me everything I ever did, and I'm not quite sure, but I think he might be the Messiah. This woman is humble. And she's humble because when we're born again, we're freed from the constant need to be concerned for our own reputation, aren't we? To, to be seen as the best and brightest in others' eyes. This is an effect of being embraced by Christ. Right? We're free from the tyranny of thinking that others will reject us. And we're free from that because Christ has accepted us. So she's free to be honest about her condition because Christ has called her and cleansed her and, renew, and renewed her, knowing exactly who she is. To belong to Christ means you don't have to pretend. He knows her and He calls her. There's this book out right now by David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, entitled How to Know a Person. And in the beginning of that book, Brooks makes this, this comment. He says, No crueler punishment can be devised than to not see someone to render them unimportant or invisible. And that's where this woman has been. She's been isolated, guarded, because she was an outcast, unimportant, and invisible to the world around her. But now she's been offered cleansing and acceptance. Jesus has seen her in her sin, in her need for purification. He's understood her. He knows her need, and He provides for a hope that's beyond what she's ever had before. And as she's brought to this place of believing, she's humble. She's not arrogant, but she's free with the fact she has a history and she's free with the fact she might not totally understand this Messiah business all the way, but come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see the man. So there's this evidence of new birth in her humility. Priorities, people, humility, all this evidence. And then, and then finally, we also see that she's fruitful. She speaks with people about, about Jesus and her town. And in verse 30, we read, they left the town and made their way to him. She's bearing fruit for Jesus. And, and it is interesting to, to note that um, it, it's more than they just, just kind of were wandering over, thinking that this Jesus might be an interesting character. There's, there's actually something portrayed here more like, more like people flooding to Jesus, and we get that because John uses an imperfect verb here in Greek, which isn't very exciting to say that out loud, but, but, but it actually makes a difference in terms of how we read this. So if we were to translate verse 30 a little more literally, we could read, they left the town and came and kept on coming to Jesus. There's this flowing out of people to to go see Christ because of what she's done. They started to come and kept on coming. Right? So, so the woman's witness has a, has a profound effect, uh, like we talked about earlier. By, by the time we get down to verses 39 to 42, we read that many in the town will believe in Jesus. So we just ask ourselves the question, am I the one looking for opportunities to tell people come see Jesus? as evidence of new birth? Right? That kind of desire for, for fruitful evangelism? So we have this, this new birth evidence, and we can check our own hearts by these things. Has the, has the grace of Christ adjusted my priorities? Has the grace of Christ caused me to engage with people in a way I otherwise would shy away from? Has the grace of Christ produced humility? You know, since, since, I'm, since I'm known by Christ and cleansed by Christ through His work on the cross, can I freely acknowledge certain areas of my life as needy and be open about the fact that I may not know all there is to know, but I'm still going to be trusting in Him, and you should too? Am I bearing fruit? Am I speaking about Jesus to others? Am I engaging with others in a way that genuinely puts the realities of Christ's transformative work on display so, so that I might have the opportunity to say, come and see? 
So when we put all this together, we have, we have this significant after effect from Jesus' engagement with the woman at the well. The effect includes the disciples' surprise at this interaction. The effect includes this woman's extraordinary impact on her own town. And the effect includes all these evidence of, uh, evidences of new birth that now run through this woman's life. You engage in an encounter with Jesus, somebody who's far off, somebody we would least expect, and what happens? Well, everything changes. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory that we rest in as His people, and that's a glory that we expect to see displayed in the lives of others as we go out into the world. The fact that Jesus comes and Jesus transforms, and the evidence of that is there before us. And so we're thankful for these things as we meditate on them and recognize that through John's witness to Christ, we're brought along in our belief ourselves and all the, all the uh, realities of our own lives are adjusted by the truth that's here. We want to follow Jesus and we see Him uh, coming to us through the texts of Scripture and calling us to these same things. Let's pray together. So Father, we're thankful for Your Word and we ask that we would be renewed by this. We ask that we would be uh, quick to respond to the grace that you've shown us in Christ, that we would hear his voice through your word, which comes to us and renews us. And we ask that we would be faithful in response to that. Uh, we need your help for this. And we recognize that you give that help. You're the one who's powerful to save and powerful to uh, engage us in a persevering and faithful life. So we depend upon you in Jesus' name. Amen.